Welcome to Golden Beer Talks. Hello, good evening. Couple quick announcements before we roll here. First, we wanna express our gratitude to the Buffalo Rose for being such a great host and treating us so awesome. Also to goldentoday.com for taking such good care of us and always promoting our events and other important happenings around our town. If you are curious about what's going on in Golden and you haven't yet signed up for the newsletters from goldentoday.com, highly recommended. And I think Barb Warden is in the house somewhere. There we go. Speaking of email lists, we have some signups for our email list. If you aren't already on our list and you'd like to be on our list, please join it. We never share the list and we send about a couple of messages a month just to let you know what we're up to. In terms of what we're up to, on several of these tables we have some cards showing our upcoming events. We have a couple date changes. We normally meet the second Tuesday of every month. September and October this year will just be slightly adjusted because of other events going on here at the Rose. So that's noted on those cards. It'll be in our emails, it'll be on our website, but just a quick heads up about that. And it is not that often that you can be the newest brewery in Golden because we keep getting new ones. But tonight we have Golden's newest brewery featured and it's pretty darn good beer. I'm gonna get Corey and Jason up here to talk a little bit about that before we get going. Here they are, over yonder brewing. Hello everybody, um, thanks for having us. Um, really appreciate being here. Um, this is the first time we've um, actually participated in something like this, so um, haven't really prepared anything, so I'm just kind of winging it here. Um, but, <laughs> But anyway, um, my name's Jason, this is Corey. Um, I'm the owner and brewer of Over Yonder Brewing Company. Um, basically the backstory of our brewery is I started out as a home brewer. Um, over 10 years ago, I just got started into home brewing after um, just acquiring a great appreciation for craft beer, um, drinking loads and loads and different types of IPAs. Um, and then just decided at that point that I needed to do this and decided to homebrew and started from basically extract kits from a local homebrew store and um, quickly really fell in love and very, got very passionate about it and um, quickly started getting into all grain brewing and then more and more recipe development over the years. Um, then got heavily into um, entering homebrew competitions to get feedback and just be able to help myself with uh, recipe development and all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, just really got passionate about it and started just constantly doing research, either online, reading books, um, YouTube. YouTube's amazing, by the way. You can almost learn anything on YouTube. Um, Okay, sorry. Um, so yeah, um, but just at that point, um, getting really good feedback from friends, family, um, and just good beer tastings around with my beer um, that uh, I decided that maybe opening up a brewery would be a good option for us. Um, we took two attempts at it with failure, um, just Things didn't come together financially, um, and uh, 
whatnot. But anyway, um, after about the third time around, we decided, hey, uh, the beer is really good, and it's really time to, to get down and do this. So we actually sat down with uh, my sister, myself, and uh, my wife, Jessie, and we went down and did the entire business plan together with help from local breweries and just reaching out and getting advice from our good friends that we knew in the brewing industry um, that really helped us out getting this, the ball rolling on this. So um, just constantly going through that and then entering competitions after that and going through all that again. Um, just got down into it and got the brewery going. So um, I apologize that I'm not on point here, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we are, thank you. We are located in um, Southwest Golden, right as you're um, heading into the gorgeous foothills of the Rocky Mountains here, um, right off uh, the Morrison exit in I-70 right near the Avalanche Harley-Davidson and Origins Hotel. So we're in a brand new development. Um, we're really excited to be there. Um, it's been a long time coming. Uh, we've looked at multiple places along the Front Range, and um, as soon as we found this spot, it didn't take long for us to decide that, hey, this is actually a really good opportunity for us. So being right near Red Rocks, um, we're pretty excited. We have a huge focal point in music. We really love music, um, so we're definitely going to start working on and accumulating more artists coming in and playing for us. We're huge jam band fans, so um, if, you have, if you've been to the brewery, then we're huge fish fans, so you can probably tell with the way that our brewery looks that we are definitely into that kind of scene. Um, but uh, yeah, we're open to all kinds of genres. I'm into all kinds of different kinds of music, so we just love music in general. So we're very excited to feature that in our brewery um, and grow in, along the way with that. Um, we also um, are very passionate about our beers, and um, my number one top notch about actually owning a brewery is brewing quality beer. Um, uh, for me, that is a huge thing. Uh, I just really get down into the science of it and just want to be able to produce constant and consistent good beer. Um, the two beers that we have here today, um, the American Wheat, which is um, a wheat beer that we actually dry hopped and brewed with lemon drop hops. So it kind of has a nice uh, lemony um, twist to it. It's very good for the summer months. Um, it's a really good hot summer day beer. I could you can drink a number of them and still, yeah, you know, it's good beer. But um, the other one uh, that I brought was uh, Citronade, which is a beer that I developed over the course of three to four years of just consistently brewing and dialing in the recipe. Uh, that one considered started out actually to be a pale ale. But when my gravities hit too high and my hop doses was also too high, it just turned out to be a really good IPA. So um, I decided to make it an IPA and continue to develop the recipe. It was also, um, at the time when I was first developing it, to be an oatmeal pale ale. So I had added um, 
um, rolled oats with, along with um, some golden naked oats, which are actually malted oats that contribute a little bit of um, nuttiness and berryness to it. So I've kept that in the recipe, and then I've just worked on um, the hop dosage, and um, that one's all got, the entire beer has citra hops in it, so it's got plenty of, plenty of citra hops in it. It's got a really nice malty backbone, kind of has a little bit of a granola effect in the um, backbone of it, so it's really good after a nice hike. Um, I really enjoy it and can't drink enough of it, so <laughs> anyway. Yeah, that's uh, for the beers, and then we have plenty of other good beers at our tap room that um, I really like to focus on. I'm a huge IPA fan, so uh, we definitely have a few of those on tap now. Um, and then definitely working in towards getting some darker beers on tap for the fall month, so um, we're working on an Imperial Stout. Um, uh, oatmeal Stout will be coming up, and then we're actually gonna be partnering with the uh, um, coffee shop that's next to us launch uh, coffee and spirits and we're going to be developing a um, blonde coffee stout so it's going to have a, a little more of a blonde base look to it but it'll also have the coffee feel so it'll taste almost like a stout with coffee in it but it won't look like a stout so it's, it's a fun little uh, experiment recipe we're working on so pretty happy to be working on that one but anyway um, Enough about the brewery. If anybody has any questions, um, we can get started on that. Sure. Yeah. Drinking beer. Thank you, guys. Cheers. Well, thank you, Jason and Corey. My, uh, my mother is Austrian, and so when I go visit my grandmother, we always had a wheat beer when we'd go. I used to climb. I know I don't look like it, but I used to climb, and my, mother, my grandmother would pack a beer in my backpack for lunch on our climbs, uh, which I thought was freaking brilliant, and it resulted in some really wonderful descents as well. So uh, wheat's a, a big favorite of mine. My name is Brian Copham. I'm the executive director of Boulder County Farmers Markets, and I have the privilege of, thank you, I have the privilege of introducing our speaker tonight. And I feel like this introduction is good anytime. There's no great time for it, but now. Now is a great time for this introduction because the wealth gap in our country has increased tremendously and at the same time our farmers are running on the fumes of subsidized agriculture and those individuals who are just mad enough to think that farming is actually a good idea that is not a system that is going to carry us into the future and it's not one that has worked for us in the last 70 years and this really hit home for me when I thought about my time, I won't say my youth, but my time in the 1990s, the early 90s, when all of my friends in college were running off to Wall Street to emulate that hero of all heroes, heroes Gordon Gecko, 
the character in Wall Street, the movie, who is absolutely uh, just after his own financial gain. That was a, a, a challenging time and an interesting time reflecting on it now, but it's good to know that at that time, at that time there was one individual who was twisting and tugging on this thread of thinking, can't our financial system actually work for everybody and not just a few? That individual, I'll read the list here. I'm not there yet. He coined the term patient capital and B Corp long before such things became mainstream. He worked as the chairman and CEO of Investor Circle, one of the oldest angel investment networks that put hundreds of millions of dollars into several hundred ventures since 1992. He was treasurer of the Jesse Smith Noise Foundation and pioneered mission-related investing. And if you don't know what that is, please ask, because it's, it's really fascinating. He was the founding chairman of the Community Development Venture Capital Alliance, affectionately known as CDVCA. That, I'm just kidding, nobody affectionately calls it that. It, it's just a very strange acronym. And in 2010, he wrote Inquiries into the Nature of Slow Money, Investing as if Food, Farms, and Fertility Mattered. This first book sparked a movement across the nation putting tens of millions of dollars into hundreds of local and organic food operations. This individual, of course, is Woody Tash, the chairman and CEO of the Slow Money Institute. Since that time, in late, in late 2017, Woody finished his second book, Soil, Notes Toward the Theory and Practice of Nurture Capital, which one early reviewer calls Walden for the 21st century. The book is groundbreaking, not just in its content, but also in its format, with a, a mythic poem at the front. Think of uh, Iliad Light at the front of the book, and photos and essays of local farmers and entrepreneurs who are making this happen at the back of the book. So please help me welcome the man who, Utney Reader, named as one of 25 visionaries who are changing your world and someone I'm very honored to call a friend and a colleague, Woody Tash. None of that was true. But maybe it sounded true after a beer or two. All right. Uh, I guess I have to stand. Uh, let me take this out. No, do that maybe. Yeah. Oh, oh right. I'm, I'm remembering what we're doing. So um, thank you all for having me here. Um, I don't know if Brian actually said this. Um, the Slow Money Institute is based in Boulder. It's a very small NGO. We're 10 years old. Uh, it started after my first book. Uh, I wasn't trying to start an NGO, uh, but this little movement started. I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. Um, to start off, we have a three-minute video, and uh, it's about what we're doing in Carbondale. And 
the one thing I have to tell you when you look at this video is ignore all the numbers because it's three, the two or three years old footage and there are more people, more dollars. Um, you'll hear something, we're the only club in the United States doing the well, one now, there are three of them. You know, so don't worry about the numbers, just feel the energy and the concept. So why don't we just go ahead and play that and then I'll follow up. We got the money to build this through the Two Forks Club, Slow Money is Long. So that footage came from a, a documentary, a full-length documentary called How We Grow, which um, happened to be about some of the farmers that 
the Sloan Money people had made loans to in, in uh, Roaring Fork Valley. But um, if you're intrigued, you should look at the, that documentary. One, uh, something like it might have been the best environmental documentary in Colorado two years ago, something like that. So it's you know it's gotten noticed a little bit, had a little bit of support from uh, from uh, Sundance Institute. Uh, so as I said, the numbers are all outdated in there. So that, that particular group now is up to about three, they've, they've raised over $300,000. I think they've lent out about, I should say we, I'm a member of it, uh, maybe $250,000. Um, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of go back now. That, um, what I'm really here to talk about tonight is that model, but with a different name, called SOIL, Slow Opportunities for Investing Locally. That's an acronym. Okay, just checking, just, you know. I know after a beer or two, acronym recognition definitely, you know, goes down. Um, and the reason it has a different name is because that was kind of the beta. That was kind of where the idea, where we tested the idea. This idea of people donating money in and then making 0% loans. So since, since that's really the takeaway I want, I'm hoping you'll get from tonight, I just want to say it again now and I'll say it again at the end. Just think about what, those, what we were doing in those rooms there, in people's houses in uh, Carbondale and Basalt and Aspen. Dozens of people put in amounts. Now, in, again, forget those numbers. I'm going to tell you the numbers as they are in Boulder because it's, the, it's a more recent iteration. We're, we're, uh, donations start at $250, unless you're, an organic far unless you're a farmer. Got to take that word organic away, even though they are all, we are all organic farmers over there. Um, uh, you can, if you're a farmer, you can come in for $25. We're not trying to take money from the farmers. We're trying to get money to the farmers, but we want everybody in the club to contribute something. So if you leave out the 25 bucks, everybody who's a non-farmer, $250 up. The, our donations in Boulder have ranged from $250 to $50,000. Those are individual donations. You get one vote whether you put in the $250 or the $50,000. And, and members are making 0% loans to local farmers. In Boulder, we, we're, we've been up and going for about a year and a half. And, well, we're coming on our second year now. Uh, we've raised over $300,000 in Boulder. We've lent out over $100,000. We've just hired our first staff person who's here, Kim Wurst. If you have questions, you should talk to Kim after. Um, Brian, uh, who introduced me, is on our executive committee. Tana Schultz is here, who's on our executive committee. And uh, you know, just think about that for a second. It's so simple um, that it's easy to forget that it might be you know, important. People putting in anything from $250 to no upper limit, $50,000, and getting one vote on who's gonna get a 0% loan. And then you say, why 0%? We'll talk about that later. Um, this model came out of, I'm now gonna um, do very quick PowerPoints, only it's uh, maybe eight slides, something like that. Just to give you an overview of where this idea came from. It came out of the slow money movement, which Brian alluded to. Um, after my first book came out, it kind of sparked, it sparked with a bunch of people, and uh, before we knew it, there were dozens of groups, and um, uh, all of that activity is completely unstructured. That's why it's, it's a movement, it's not a fund. There are no transaction fees, there's no fiduciary involvement of any kind. Does anybody here work in the financial services industry? Okay, we're good. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so yeah, I sometimes use um, uh, the playful phrase, as non-fiduciary a way as possible, right? Meaning it's the opposite of giving your money to a distant, in a, putting it into a distant market or giving it to a financial professional or putting it into an ETF or something like that. We're taking our money directly and giving it to local farmers. Um, 
the numbers you're going to hear, you're going to hear a number like $73 million. Just to give you an idea of the scale, then I'm going to blow through these slides because we don't have a lot of time. I just trust you. Just let me kind of run through it. But since slow money investing started in June of 2010, more than $73 million has gone to around 750 um, farms and food enterprises around the country in about a dozen communities, roughly. We say dozens of communities, but if any of you know what a network is, there are higher functioning ones, lower functioning ones, but it's a lot of activity. It's a lot of stuff happening around the country. We're 10 years old, and we are now trying to figure out how we can grow more in the second decade, given the severity of the problems, some of which Brian alluded to. And it was interesting in his introduction, he, he really, he started when he got into the meat of it, I think, talking about wealth inequality. And then he got into the farming part. So there are two parts to this. There's the food and farming part, which is pretty obvious what that is. There are all kinds of reasons there, soil fertility, carbon, climate change, healthy people, soil erosion, toxics in water. Uh, it's just a whole bunch of things that are the industrial system that Brian alluded to uh, was not designed to address and therefore is not addressing or is addressing in a destructive way. So there's all the food stuff, food and farming stuff, and then there's the money part. And I'm guessing some of you he have heard about slow food. How many people here know what slow food is? Few, so, some. So uh, that their big annual event was just in, Den in Denver a couple of weeks ago. So there's, you know, there's the food part, but then you, when you add the money part, the whole thing kind of you know, kind of bumps up to the next level. And that, the question of directly putting some money to work in the local community in something that you innately believe in, that you do not need an expert to tell you, is valuable. So when Susan Brady um, made the remarks there in the film that there are lots of other returns, that's a way of saying it. I mean, I don't even, to me, that doesn't even say it enough. It's beyond returns. <laughs> it's, it's about direct relationships connecting to one another, places where we live and to the land. What's the return on that? You don't need to have a return. It's, it's, it's beyond return. So, um, so as I blow through this, uh, just keep in mind that almost all the money that has gone through slow money since 2010 has gone through with no structure at all. In meetings like this, where you might have a few farmers up pitching, or it could be a, a microbrewer, anything that's involved in, in food production and distribution and consumption in, in a local area, and then if you guys were all members of, well, let me take that back. If this was a, just a general slow money meeting and there was no soil or two forks club, you just all had come in off the street because you heard about the meeting, a few of you might decide, hey, we kind of like those guys. We want to, let's, let's meet with them separately and see if we can make something happen. That's the way the $73 million has gone, just completely informal and direct. And the reason for coming up with this model of the donations and the 0% loans is our attempt to say, what if we could just drop a little structure into this little magic thing? Uh, maybe it'll grow a lot faster and build something permanent for the community long term. So the, if you, if you're, uh, the last thing I'll say on the model, until you ask me questions after, is some of, somebody out there must be going, how the hell is this ever going to work? Zero donations and 0% loans. Well, just think it through for a second. Just do, let's do a little quick arithmetic here. So if you put, if you, let's say you got $100,000 a year coming in the top of the funnel, and you have expenses running the club, and you, blah, 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 and you make some loans. Whatever that amount of loans is, let's say you loan $65,000 a year or $70,000 a year. Some of those loans are not going to pay back, but most of them will pay back. There's 0% loans. All you're trying to do is get the principal back three or four years later. 
And so if you keep doing this for, I'm going to scare you, a generation, a long time, slow money, long term, think compost, financial, 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 that's, that is not a joke. I'll tell you when I'm telling a joke. <laughs> um, so think for, instead of venture, think of it as the opposite of venture capital, the absolute opposite. So nurture capital, opposite of venture capital. Instead of shooting for the moon and trying to make 100 times your money in two years and all the other things, this is the opposite of that. It's putting money. We talk about bringing money back down to earth. You have to think long term. And uh, you have to believe that uh, if, we, if enough of us do this and we stick with it, a, a generation from now, we'll have a whole bunch of these community-based structures in place for building soil fertility and healthy communities. Um, you can tell that I didn't rehearse this. Um, also, so, uh, well, it's hard in, tw in 20 or 30 minutes, it's kind of hard to know. I'm just trying to give you a feel. But I would say the only, the only other piece I would give you, kind of a macro piece, is that there are no organized funding mechanisms for local food systems in the United States. Just think of how amazing that is. If you, look in if you look at philanthropy and you just look at the, whatever it is now, seven or $800 billion of philanthropic assets and the 50 or $60 billion a year that gets granted by professionally managed private foundations, and this few hundred million dollars, several hundred million dollars that gets given by individuals every year to churches and schools and disaster relief and all that, almost nothing, you can, you can round it down to zero, goes to sustainable agriculture or local food systems. It's just not seen as a philanthropic priority. And there are a lot of reasons for that, if we can talk about it later if you want, but that is the fact. So part of this is just addressing something that needs to be addressed. If you believe, I'll, let's do a quick straw poll here. Be honest. How many people think it's important to have more small and mid-sized organic farms near where they live? All right, I don't know if you're really being honest, or, but I'm going to say you were. Okay, so where's the money going to come from? You can shop at the farmer's market. You can belong to a CSA. Those are great things. And... It's not enough to really help the, the, the new generation of farmers get going. They need working capital. They need to build a hoop house. They need to do things. Um, so, so that's the big picture. Um, as, as promised several times, I'm going to blow through these slides, and then I'm going to read a paragraph or two from my book just to give you a flavor of kind of the broader conversation that's behind all this, and then we'll talk because my hope is we're here not just as an academic exercise. We'd love it if we have this group in Boulder. We have no... Um, let's say we're developing more specificity about what our region is. We say local. We don't, there's no definition of like 100 miles, 75 miles, what does that mean? We're trying to promote on the front range more small and mid-sized organic farms and local food enterprises. And we'd love to see more groups start doing this. Um, we've had just enough experience now with this model to say it's working. And we'd love to see it expand in some way. And you guys are almost closer than neighbors, I don't know how to describe it. We have made one loan to Fort Collins and we have done one loan in Denver, and the other five loans are all right in Boulder County. So, okay, bear with me here. That is our logo. This is a, this is a pig. This is a Nyman Ranch hog standing outside in a pasture in Thornton, Iowa, where it lived, it's no longer alive. Um, and when I do, when I have a longer time to do a talk, if it's a workshop or whatever, I start with this and I say, stare this pig in the face and think for a minute about how your money is affecting other living things. 
So we just did a two-second version of that. <laughs> um, this is my first book. And there's a sentence in it that kind of encapsulated the whole thing. It says, as it circulates the globe with ever-accelerating speed, money sucks oxygen out of the air, fertility out of the soil, and culture out of local communities. Obviously, um, you could write a whole book on that. Someone did. All right, after the book came out, um, I was asked to summarize it in one page because um, as some of you probably know, not everyone reads books anymore. Um, and so we have something called the Slow Money Principles. It's one page. There are six principles. This is the last of six principles, and you will see when I read this. Don't try, don't, well, if you can read it, that's fine, but I'm going to read it out. Our principles are kind of like um, prompts to think about something. They're prompts to have a different kind of conversation. The first slow money principle is we must bring some of our money back down to earth. And again, we could have a long discussion about what that might mean to you and exactly what it means. So this is the, the last slow money principle. Paul Newman said, in life we need to be more like the farmer who puts back into the soil what he takes out. Recognizing the wisdom of these words, let us ask, what would the world be like if we invested 50% of our money within 50 miles of where we live? And that uh, question came to me when I was running Investor Circle, the angel network that Brian mentioned, and I was trying to get us as a group of people. Our meetings were usually bigger than the, usually 150 or so people from all over the country. And it was, we were trying to think outside the box about why we weren't able to put more of our money to work. And money was going, you know, five or $10 million a year was going into stuff. And um, it occurred to me pretty early on that sense of place was one of the main reasons. If you don't value the place where you live and you're only thinking about markets, guess what? All your money will go to markets and the places where you live will be degraded. And that is basically what's happening. So um, since uh, working with everybody around the country on slow money for the last 10 years, I've actually come to think that first bullet is a little bit more uh, of, a guide, of, a of a real guide than just a thought-provoking question. Because we may have to get to this point. We may have to get, as a, as a civilization, I say we, I mean, every, I mean way more than just us on the front range that we actually have to take a meaningful portion of our assets and then put it to work near where we live and things that we understand with people that we know and trust. Because if you put it into global markets, where is it going to end up? You can fill in the blanks here. Um, but I, I mean, maybe the punchline is it's gonna end up in the atmosphere is where it's really gonna end up. Um, here's a horrible stat. I'll get off, I won't do any more horrible stats. Four Hiroshima bombs a second's worth of BTUs, of heat, is going into the atmosphere from the global economy. Every second, that's 400,000 bombs a day. It's, you know, it's, it's, this, it's, that's beyond staring the pig in the face. I mean, that is, you know, hard to fathom. So we can't fix all of that, but we can fix some things where, near where we live. And, uh, you know, I believe, uh, having worked at the national level for quite a while, um, which is why my hair is, looks like it does now. Um, I don't think the solutions are gonna come from national markets or multinational corporations or government programs. I really don't. Doesn't mean we shouldn't do all that. We gotta keep doing that. But we've gotta do a lot more stuff at the, at the grassroots, truly grassroots. I mean, this is truly grassroots. Okay, second question. What if there were a new generation of companies that gave away 50% of their profits? And that's kind of a riff on Newman's own and, and Patagonia and whatever. 
Um, and then the last one is what if there were 50% more organic matter in the soil 50 years from now? So those are like 50-50 things because I really kind of feel deep down that like what are the odds we are going to pull the rabbit out of the hat? Probably they're not any better than 50-50 at this point. But we got to do everything we can. That sounded kind of somber. I apologize for that. Um, this is my second book. I'm going to read a paragraph from it, uh, I think, right now. So I just, this is, um, this is offered in the spirit of zooming way back and letting yourself kind of feel um, how radically different our approach to money and investing has to be going forward. Not with all of our money, with some of our money. This is not about numbers. Doing these numbers versus doing those numbers. This is about reaffirming the primacy of words over the claims on our attention made by numbers. Reaffirming the primacy of relationships over the claims of transactions. Reaffirming the primacy of nutrition over the claims of cheap calories. Reaffirming the primacy of places over the claims of markets. Reaffirming the primacy of generations and seasons over the claims of milliseconds and algorithms. Reaffirming the primacy of putting back in over the claims of taking out. Okay, so on the, on the cover of the book, that appears. And uh, I hope some of you will notice that it's a little bit of a kind of a figure groundy thing, right? If you take the word soil and, and make believe it was on a hinge and you fold it down, it almost makes the number 2017, not quite. So I have a bunch of stuff in the book about MC Escher, about seeing things differently, about, you know, are we paying attention to the right things? Are we looking at the foreground or the background? And uh, just in the spirit of, this is my, this is my version of fun. Um, I want to read you one other paragraph. By the way, anybody here not know M.C. Escher? It's kind of a negative. Up, oh, that is embarrassing. That's embarrassing. Okay, all right. But since you were good. Oh, you do. Oh, good. You were kidding. Okay, good. Because I actually have a, a couple of slides of M.C. Escher prints, but I'm going to assume everybody knows what M.C. Escher prints look like. Figure ground images. I would like to offer for M.C. Escher's posthumous consideration the following as a figure ground stumper. And actually, I do think while I'm doing this, I should just have this, this I should just have one of, one of his slides up there just as a, okay, so I'd like to offer this as a figure ground stumper, industrial food systems. Industrial food systems are a figure without a ground. CAFOs, GMOs, NPK, high fructose corn syrup, Roundup, mouthfeel texturants, polysorbate 80, trans fats, yellow dye number whatever, feedlots, manure lagoons, cocoa puffs, untold BTUs spent processing, distributing, refrigerating, and freezing food. These are all part of a figure that has no ground. And a figure without a ground, like a house divided, cannot stand. All right, almost, almost done. Um, how am I doing on time? Are we we're kind of okay? Where's Karen? She was going to... Five minutes? 
Good. All right. So, so um, I and the two books and the early adopters, people started, have sparked a conversation around the country. Um, it kind of looks like this. You know, it's not, it's not, it looks like this. It looks like you guys. You know, it's a, groups of people coming together in communities all around the country. Uh, we've had five national events. Um, anybody who's ever organized a big event knows why we've only had five. Um, it's, it's a bitch, it's really hard. Um, uh, that, that big audience there on the upper right is Joel Salatin speaking at the last of our national gatherings. We had Wendell Berry there, Vanda Nashiva. Those of you who know those names know these, this is kind of the A-list. Um, there were 800 people there, that was our biggest. So it's just, it's a bunch of people getting together in various settings to talk about this, and if it's a local meeting, which most of them are, decide, can we do something here? Um, the, 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 the tally at the moment is 16 networks, 12 investment clubs, uh, over 30,000 people have signed those slow money principles that I referred to. Um, it's more than 73 million now invested in 748 deals. Tens of thousands of people have come to our events, and we've had lots of testimonials. I put Bill McGibbon on here just because he may be the most obvious national figure that you would like to bless you in something like this. So he said, slow money is one of the keys to a healthy future. And uh, this is the last slide, which I've already talked about. So the, the thing we've come to as a kind of a, a pathway to our second decade is this idea of donations and 0% loans. And I just want to come back to that model. I'm about to stop and just say, remember, um, the, the, for me as the putting my social entrepreneur hat on, meaning that not just writing and talking, but trying to get something to happen, whoops, get something to happen, um, the challenge in all this is how do you build capacity? How can you make something happen that will have some oomph to it long term? So if you get a whole bunch of people excited, everyone does something for a year or two and then it peters out, that's not a bad thing, but it's not good enough given what's going on. And so the idea of donating capital so that it stays in, you get a tax deduction the year you put the money in, that's your only financial return. The money stays in, and then you participate in lending the money out over many years, and you just keep doing it. Eventually, if you can get 100,000 plus coming in at the top every year, in Boulder our goal is $250,000 a year from 150 people. We're not there yet. Uh, it's an arbitrary goal, I'll be the first to admit just a target, but the idea is if we keep doing that, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, there'll be millions of dollars in the pool and we'll, have some, we'll get to have some fun. Uh, and in the meantime, we're helping a bunch of small farmers, which is fun in itself. So um, I think I'm done. Thank you all for listening and I look forward to answering questions. Thank you very much, Woody. Uh, we'll take a five minute break five to 10 minutes and we'll come back for Q&A. Thank you.